0: Today, we're going to wrap up our relationship sailing series that we've been kind of on the journey of for the past few weeks. And today, we're going to wrap it up on uh, a story about uh, one of David's probably most well known stories, his most well known relationship, David versus Goliath. So epic. And, And again, if you've been with us over the past three weeks, we've been paralleling David's relationships with our core values as a church. We looked at David's relationship with Jonathan and our core value of unconditional love and how important it is for us to model true Christian fellowship and brotherhood and love for one another and, and what that looks like and how that endures through the test of time. And then, In the second week, we looked at, at our um, core value of un- authentic community and how David, his, his most epic failure was that he, he stayed home as opposed to being accountable and being in an authentic community. Those that kept him accountable, he was responsible to, and really that God had called him to ministry to, In the time that kings went out to war, David stayed home, so he avoided that authentic community, and it cost him dearly. And last week, we looked at David and Saul's relationship and our core value of service, and that that David was so faithful. God saw his heart when he was in the field, and so it was tested when he was in the battlefield and in in the desert. And that whole time that David was faithful, even when Saul was coming after him to kill him, he, he felt convicted even when he clipped a piece of his shirt off, that he wouldn't lay a hand on the man he was called to serve. Uh, and so we're going to um, go in today and, and talk about our core value of creativity. And I've, I've got about a five-minute video. It's a much longer video than what I normally show, um, but it's kind of hard to find a stopping place. And it's so good, it's so interesting talking about creativity and, and how limitations can actually uh, produce creativity. So here's a guy named Phil Hansen. <laughs>
1: When I was in art school, I developed a shake in my hand, and this was the straightest line I could draw. Now, in, in hindsight, it was actually good for some things, like mixing a can of paint or shaking a Polaroid. But at the time, this was really doomsday. This was, this was the destruction of my dream of becoming an artist. The shake developed out of really a single-minded pursuit of pointillism, just years of making tiny, tiny dots. And eventually, these dots went from being perfectly round, to looking more like tadpoles because of the shake. So, to compensate, I'd hold the pen tighter, and this progressively made the shake worse, so I'd hold the pen tighter still. And this became a vicious cycle that ended up causing so much pain and joint issues, I had trouble holding anything. And after spending all my life wanting to do art, I left art school, and then I left art completely. But after a few years, I just couldn't stay away from art, and I decided to go to a neurologist about the shake and discovered I had permanent nerve damage. And he actually took one look at my squiggly line and said, well, why don't you just embrace the shake? So I did. I went home, I grabbed a pencil, and I just started letting my hand shake and shake. I was making all these scribble pictures. And even though it wasn't the kind of art that I was ultimately passionate about, it felt great. And more importantly, once I embraced the shake, I realized I could still make art. I just had to find a different approach to making the art that I wanted. Now, I still enjoyed the fragmentation of pointillism, seeing these little tiny dots come together to make this unified whole. So I began experimenting with other ways to fragment images where the shake wouldn't affect the work, like dipping my feet in paint and walking on a canvas. Or in a 3D structure consisting of two-by-fours, creating a 2D image by burning it with a blowtorch. I discovered that if I worked in a larger scale with bigger materials, my hand really wouldn't hurt. And after having gone from a single approach to art, I ended up having an approach to creativity that completely changed my artistic horizons. This was the first time I'd encountered this idea that embracing a limitation could actually drive creativity. At the time, I was finishing up school, and I was so excited to get a real job and finally afford new art supplies. I had this horrible little set of tools, and I felt like I could do so much more with the supplies I thought an artist was supposed to have. I actually didn't even have a regular pair of scissors. I was using these metal shears until I stole a pair from the office that I worked at. So I got out of school, I got a job, I got a paycheck, I got myself to the art store, and I just went nuts buying supplies. And then when I got home, I sat down and I set myself to test to really try to create something just completely outside of the box. But I sat there for hours, and nothing came to mind. The same thing the next day, and then the next, quickly slipping into a creative slump. And I was in a dark place for a long time, unable to create. And it didn't make any sense because I was finally able to support my art, and yet I was creatively blank. But as I searched around in the darkness, I realized I was actually paralyzed by all of the choices that I never had before. And it was then that I thought back to my jittery hands embrace the shake. And I realized if I ever wanted my creativity back, I, I had to quit trying so hard to think outside of the box and get back into it. I wondered, could you become more creative then by looking for limitations? What if I could only create with a dollar's worth of supplies. At this point, I was spending a lot of my evenings in, well, I guess I still spent a lot of my evenings in Starbucks, but I know you can ask for an extra cup if you want one. So I decided to ask for 50. Surprisingly, they just handed them right over, and then with some pencils I already had, I made this project for only 80 cents. It really became a moment of clarification for me that we need to first be limited in order to become limitless. I took this approach of thinking inside the box to my canvas and wondered, what if instead of painting on a canvas, I could only paint on my chest? So I painted 30 images, one layer at a time, one on top of another, with each picture representing an influence in my life. Or what if instead of painting with a brush, I could only paint with karate chops? (laughs) So I dipped my hands in paint, and I I just attacked the canvas. And I actually hit so hard that I bruised a joint in my pinky, and it was stuck straight for a couple weeks. Or, what if, what if instead of relying on myself, I had to rely on other people to create the content for the art? So, for six days, I lived in front of a webcam, I slept on the floor, and I ate takeout. And I asked people to call me and share a story with me about a life-changing moment. Their stories became the art as I wrote them onto the revolving canvas. The
0: idea of embracing the shake and how limitations can produce creativity is quite an interesting thought and I think it's so uh, apropos to our conversation today on David and Goliath because he was a, a man who from the outside has these limitations but in God's perfect creativity <clears throat> he kind of blows that out of the water and so I think that'll kind of begin to paint a portrait if you will for for where we're headed with this and um, <clears throat> and really our fourth core value is creativity and it's often thought about in things like the arts but ultimately Our fourth core value of creativity is about what God can do, about that God is, we say around here, God is still working in us, and he's still working through us, that God in his nature is creator, and when he set the stars in place and and took what was formless and void and made and created, that he's not done in that work. He's still working in you, and he's still working through us, and so we'll engage in this, and I shared a story that I I often tell. You've probably heard me tell it half a dozen times, I tell it oftentimes to to new church planners and tell them the story of when we were starting out and uh, along this journey, I, I, I really planned everything. I planned budget after budget. I planned how many team members we needed. I planned where we were going to meet. I mean, I had item and serial numbers for the products we needed to buy. It was planned out over and over again. And I said, the one thing I didn't calculate and I could never calculate is what God was going to be what God was going to do in my life, how he was going to prove himself in my life. I didn't calculate that. I was so worried about what I was going to do, I I forgot to even look that he was going to be doing something in me in the whole process. And I would just say that today, let's allow God to do something in us so that he can do something creative and new through us. Um, and so we'll dive into 1 Samuel chapter 17, but we ended last week in 1 Samuel chapter 16 with this, when Samuel is, is the prophet, he's the good prophet from the Lord, he comes and he's in, in uh, First uh, Samuel chapter 16, is there to uh, anoint David, anoint the new king, and he comes there, and he, but he doesn't know who it is yet, and the Lord just tells him this, don't look at the outside, don't look how tall he is or how strong he is, just, just look at his heart. Uh, I, I'm not judging like everybody else is judged. Men will look at the outside, but I'm going to be looking at the inside. That's what he says in First Samuel chapter 16. So let's go to First Samuel chapter 17. And once you go there, you can just stay there because we're going to stay there literally all day. We're going to be reading a lot of verses. Uh, but the story is just so interesting uh, that I do not think you'll fall asleep, even though we're reading a lot of verses today. Uh, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled in Sakath in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesus is that how you pronounce that? Demim, uh, between Sakath and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Allah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley of between them. Before we read the rest of this chapter, I want to set the picture for you so as we're going forward, you can visualize this. And if you'll throw up this picture, this is actually the valley of Allah. Let me tell you a little bit about the Philistines and the Israelites, a little context on them to begin with. The Philistines are from Crete. The Philistines are battle-tested and they're incredible warriors. Like they've been there and they've done that when it comes to battle. Um, they were seafaring people, and what, um, what the Philistines are attempting to do right now is they're trying to make their way up the coast to the Valley of Allah and break across and, and split Saul's kingdom in order to kind of demobilize what he's trying to do with his kingdom because this area right here to the coast, like if you go over one of these hills, here and here, over one of these hills is the coast, and it was an incredibly valuable trade route. In fact, there was multiple battles in history that were fought on this same I mean, there's, a, a, I think the gentleman's name is Saladin. He was a, some kind of military dude that fought the Crusaders in the 12th century. And then, if you go further back, the Maccabean Wars against Syria were fought on this same battlefield. So, it, it was a valuable piece of property over time that they were trying to get up there and kind of break the kingdom up in order to, to uh, lower their power and influence um, in the area. And so, this is where David and Goliath will have their battle with the Philistines and the Israelites. Last thing about Philistines, they hated the Israelites, hated them. They were sworn enemies. And and so for Saul, when he hears news of this, that the Philistines are making their way up and getting ready to break in and break up his territory, if you've been with us, we've talked about Saul's insecurity. When David, his servant, he he is kind of growing in influence. People start singing songs about him. He gets so insecure that he chases him down and tries to have him killed over and over again. And and, and so we we see that this is kind of what's happening. So the Israelites rush down there. And it's kind of on one side. It's a perfect place for a battle on either side of the valley. And then this, this ground in the middle will be this place where they battle out. It's kind of an epic scene. So I want to kind of set that up before we, we go in here. And let's continue back at, at verse 4. And we're going to start getting to the characters. Now we've got the location, and the context. Let's begin some character development here. Full clear you. A champion named Gath, or Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Remember that that location, Gath, it was nearby. His height was six cubits and a span, somewhere between six, nine and nine foot, some guys say. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, about 100 pounds. That's how much his armor was. On his legs were bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. It was a balancing technique here to let it fly through the air. His shield bearer, his armor bearer, went ahead of him. An armor bearer was only for those that were elite, those that they really couldn't afford to lose, their greatest warrior and their greatest commanders. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why why do you even come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. He's, he, they're, they're doing a, a one-on-one battle. This is a pretty common practice in, in ancient um, warfare. Is that As opposed to having 10,000 men die on a day for over a particular battle, they would just send one warrior out from each side So there wouldn't be so much bloodshed, there would just be, the the winner of that battle would would decide the victory here. Um, Next. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of the Aphrodite. Uh, named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in uh, Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, and the second, Abinadab, dab, 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 dab. And the third, Shema. that one's a little bit easier. Uh, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and every morning and evening um, and took his stand. They're, they're kind of, let's really read one more verse there. No, go back. Uh, now Jesse said to his son David, take this of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit and see how uh, your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So so we've kind of got the context, the kind of battles, you know, scene here. And now we've got the character development. I mean, it's kind of like, for those of you that watch boxing, it's like, in this corner is Goliath, and he has a bronze helmet and a bronze, a hundred-pound bronze armor, and he has an armor-bearer and a javelin and a sword, and he goes off and off. He's six foot nine. He's the greatest warrior in all of uh, Philistine. And then to David... Here's David, and he's the youngest in his family, and he likes walk- long walks in the field with sheep, and he is the cheese bearer today, and people are like, okay, we know how this is going to go. I mean, it's kind of setting up the story um, very clearly, like how this is going to go, but spoiler alert, you know how it goes. David wins the battle. Earlier, uh, early in the morning, David left the flock. His dad just gave him instructions. He's headed out there. He's been back and forth with the war. Remember this, he's being sent there to carry bread and cheese. Like that's why he's going out to battle, not to fight. He's going out to bring bread and cheese and check on his brothers. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. Uh, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war crime. You just kind of see this, David's walking up. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper. Hey, man, can you watch my stuff? Uh, Ran to the battle lines and asked uh, his brothers how they were. Uh, As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel, the king of Israel. Uh, will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt him, um, his family, from taxes in, in Israel. Some of you guys might line up to fight if you knew you'd get taxes, like cancel too. Um, David asked the man, uh, or some of you guys would do it for a wife. Uh, David asked the, the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistines? Like we just said that, didn't you hear us? Philistine removes the disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Everybody else uses the reference, the, the armies of Israel or the armies of Saul is what he refers to it. But every single time... David refers it to as the armies of the living God. Who is this dude that has no relationship with God, he's uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the living God? Verse 27. They repeated to him that uh, what they had been saying and told him this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. I mean, isn't it right in the middle of like David's biggest battle that he's, he doesn't even know he's about to get into it? But his, it's like an older brother, younger brother. Like, you've seen this happen in your family. It's like, dude, what are you doing here? Why don't you just go away? Like, I don't know how many times I said that. To my little brother, and I just see us there. Um, now, what have I done? said David. Can I even speak? Some of you guys, younger siblings, like that's how you feel sometimes. Um, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David uh, said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Remember that? He sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. They think that, that Goliath was probably in his like early 30s, mid-30s, something like that. He's been fighting for 20, 25 years. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a, a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, And killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, Lord be with you. Like, dude, not the same battle. This ain't no lion. This lion don't have a spear in its hand. You, you know, this, this dude, you know, your, your bear didn't have an armor bearer with it. It's not the same thing, but whatever, go. So Saul was like, all right, let me help you any way I can. then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and had a bronze helmet on his head. Let's get you matched up, man. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him, <laughs> like, cute little boy, like, I hate you. Um, he, he, said, he said to them, some of, you, some of you guys that are, like, getting into middle age, you're probably like that with these little punk kids, like, I hate you, you're annoying. Uh, he, said, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Remember this, that he says sticks in the plural, and, um, and David's only got one stick and a sling in his hand. Uh, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. A little trash talk, a little smack. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. He's like, I can do some smack talk too. I've had a lot of time. In, you know, to develop this language when I'm in the field. This very day, I'll give, you the, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It's a, again, he's saying all these things, but it's about the God in Israel. All, all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into your hands, into our hands. Um, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath, and he killed him. After he killed him, he cut off his head uh, with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. As they turned and ran, I'll just paraphrase the rest. As they turned and ran, the Israelites follow them, and they just slay these dudes. They just slay them, and birds come and eat them, as David promised. Um, crazy story. Like, you've heard it before. You, you've probably heard it, some of you, since you were wee little ones. Um, but I, I think there's some things that I, I want to begin to draw out of here, um, and because many times we've looked at this, again, that David is, is the one that's at a disadvantage here, and Goliath is, has the advantage. But what, what I want us to shift our thinking, again, with the limitations that David has, and the personality that he has, the history that he has, the, and the relationship he had with God. It was, In fact, he was fighting for the right team, so he had the advantage. Goliath was fighting for the wrong team, therefore he was at a greater disadvantage, and regardless of what the outside looks like. Um, God's looking to the heart and, and drawing us into that. And so I want to look at, David's, uh, or at, at Goliath's disadvantages. And I want to look at, at David's advantages today. Goliath's downfalls, uh, David's um, triumphs, if you will, as we go in here. The first thing I, I want to look at is that, that Goliath was really unprepared for this battle. Historians tell us that, that in, in uh, ancient armies, there was really three types of warriors, three types of battle. There was cavalry, infantry, and artillery. Cavalry would be those that rode horses and had swords or something kind of spears. Uh, They would be those that were on horseback. That was cavalry. There was um, infantry, uh, which is what Goliath was. They would walk around, sometimes with an armor bearer, most of the time not for common soldiers. They would wear armor and shields and have swords in their hand. They'd be on foot. They were foot soldiers. And Goliath is about the beastly of foot soldiers that you can find. And the third type is artillery, and that's archers, and that's slingers. So there's three types of warfare, and one historian uh, put it like this, or or battle specialist, said that it was kind of like paper, rock, scissors, that each had the ability to counteract the other and to defeat the other, that cavalry could be defeated um, by uh, uh, infantry, like those that were on foot were a little more mobile. It's kind of hard to turn around on a chariot and a horse if I miss you, then I have a chance to kind of um, you know, um, immobilize you uh, for a period possibly. I can, cut the, I can duck and cut the horse's feet or something. There's different ways to do it. Uh, and artillery um, has a, a chance to be defeated by, um, by cavalry because it's difficult to kind of hit a sling and a person on a horse, it's going a little faster as opposed to a person just walking or running. Uh, and, and infantry is very much susceptible to, to that. Um. So each of them has the ability to counteract one another, and, and I could go on about that. But this ar- artillery is, is what David is, and Goliath is infantry. And so it, David, I mean, Goliath is bringing a knife to a gunfight. I mean, you've heard that phrase, and that's, I don't know if this is where it originated, but it very could have, uh, possibly could have originated here, because Goliath is thinking it's going to be a hand-to-hand combat, which was ritualistic for battles. Like, we would come out, and we would do the same thing. Like, you don't bring a gun, you know, a, a, a sword to a, a gunfight, and that's exactly what he does. He was completely unprepared for the type of battle that was coming in. He was unprepared. He was physically prepared. He was, he was in shape. He had all this kind of physical experience, but he, he lacked one great thing, and it's the spiritual experience. He was physically prepared, but not spiritually prepared for the battle that was there. He was an uncircumcised Philistine. He was fighting for the wrong team, And some of us are the same way, like in our lives, like there's Goliaths in our relationships right now, maybe that Goliath is a relationship with a boss, maybe it's an estranged family member, maybe it's, um, you know, you feel like your personality is a limitation, maybe you feel like, um, I I don't know, your, your financial situation or time resources is getting in the way of having good relationships, whatever it might be, we all have limitations, we all have Goliaths. And I think when it comes to being unprepared, like some of us, we may be physically prepared. We may have enough money in the bank. We may be physically fit, but spiritually, like we're wasting away. And I think this is what it brings it to, that physical preparation doesn't equal spiritual preparation. I think it's the spiritual birthing and being the place that motivates us for the physical. And that's what we see with David. First of all, that he was, or with Goliath, that he was unprepared. He was unprepared for this battle. It was a different battle than what he thought he was fighting that there was a spiritual battle going on too. Uh, So first, that he was unprepared. You know, secondly, um, I'd I'd say here that his biggest problem, maybe his biggest one is pride that he was so comfortable in this territory. Gath was only a few miles from the valley of Allah. It was very close. He was very close to home. They say, you know, when's the the most dangerous place for you to get into accident? It's like within three miles of your house. My first accident was literally, like you pull out of my neighborhood and I pull out right there and got my first accident, like in my first week of driving. I, I almost like, set a record because I almost did it pulling out of the driver's license office. Almost. I got really close to getting in an accident there, but I waited for a couple days to do it again. I got in like four or five accidents in my first year and a half, and I never got in one again. So I learned my lesson. And, and I think Goliath has some major downfalls here when it comes to his pride. And, and what pride is really is, it's overestimating ourselves. Paul talked about looking on yourself with sober judgment. Don't overestimate yourself. Look on yourself with sober judgment. Paul takes it to to the length of to boast. He goes, instead, I'm going to boast in my weakness because Christ is made strong in my weakness. God God proves himself in my limitations. He can, in his creativity, prove himself. And so I'd say for us, don't overestimate yourself. And for our opponent, I, I think he... He underestimated. He had been going out day after day. Everybody's running, scared. He probably woke up today. didn't He'd done it for 40 days. Probably didn't think anybody was going to show up today either. He was a little bit unprepared, a little bit arrogant, thinking like, oh, this is going to go just like it normally goes. And he underestimated his opponent. opponent. And for us today, I think that we have to, to know that I don't think we should overestimate our opponent, but I don't think we should underestimate our opponent. So I kind of jokingly say, just estimate your opponent. <laughs> just estimate and realize that you're in a battle every single day, and we don't see it. We don't see it with our physical eyes, but, but for us, the, the, if, you, if you soften your heart and allow the Lord to give you discernment, which is like wisdom for this situation, what's happening here, I really believe that he'll prepare us and, and show us the things that are happening in the spiritual realm, that, that there's, things that's, there's a battle that's going on over our soul. Uh, Don't overestimate yourself, don't over underestimate your opponent, just estimate them. And don't underestimate God. Many times we overestimate ourselves and underestimate what God can do. And what if we flip those? What if we flip them and said, what if we begin to underestimate ourselves and overestimate God, which is a joke because you can't overestimate God. You can't overestimate uh, the one that put the stars in place and formed everything, who spoke and, and it was can't overestimate him but what if we begin to flip that script and did our very best to lower ourselves and to raise him up higher and higher like what would that life look like and I think that's exactly what David did David humbled himself and the Lord exalted him and so today we can't let pride for those of you that are been battling limitations battling addictions of some sort like the worst thing you can do is to say I'm okay now as many times as you've conquered that Goliath, as many days as you've gone sober, the last thing you want to do is wake up and think you've got yourself taken care of today. It's, it's pride. It's, it's pride, and we can't let it creep in. That's why Paul's, like, advice to just brag on weaknesses is, like, powerful, because it keeps us in that mindset of lowering ourselves. Uh, David's example of just serving, Jesus' example of serving all the time, keeps us in that mindset of me becoming lower and him becoming greater in all things. Because pride, pride is Goliath's downfall, um, and and it's many times it's ours. Um, Disability, I think, is Goliath's third one. Um, I I mentioned, remember this, that that Goliath had, he had, uh, um, he looked on David and he said, why is it that you come on me with sticks? Um, Well, there's a recent author that's put this out, and he's not the first, but it's become very popular, that that Goliath um, had a, a disease. He had um, what caused gigantism or acromyalgia or something like that. that um, those in the medical world could tell me what it's actually called. Something like that. Yeah, I hear you saying it. I'll go with that. Um, and uh, he, he possibly had this disease. And what it is, it's, it's a disease of the pituitary gland, which, it, which um, causes the, the growth hormones. And so basically after puberty, the growth hormones keep coming and they never stop. And it really presents itself and begins to present heavy symptoms in in early middle age, which is about the age that Goliath was. I mean, Andre the Giant died of this. um, Lurch from the Adams family had this disease. Some even say that Abraham Lincoln had this same disease. um, And and this caused him just to continue to grow. And one of the symptoms is nearsightedness, blurred vision, sometimes double vision. And it presents itself in the time that Goliath had it. So this author just kind of posed, like, is it possible that he was seeing this, he looks on David and says, why is it that you come at me with sticks? And David is carrying one stick and a rope with a leather pouch and some stones. Like, that's what he's carrying. And he says, sticks. Is it possible that he was seeing blurred vision? Well, nothing in Scripture tells us that that was what was taking place. Maybe he just misspoke or, I don't know, he'd been hit in the head too many times from being in battle. I don't know. Um, But uh, there's an interesting thing there, but I, I don't think that his greatest disability was, in fact, his being a giant. I, I think his greatest disability was that he was fighting for the wrong team. He was fighting for the wrong team. He was ill-prepared. He was prideful. And all of these just became a greater and greater disability. Because many can look on, um, you know, with David and say that he was at the greatest disadvantage. But I really think, again, if we just look at, you know, if we got to pick teams. You guys remember when you were in elementary school and you got to pick teams? Like, how many of you guys were last picked in kickball? Anybody? Some of you being honest, okay, okay, I get it, we don't want to be honest, it's okay. Um, but it was that time, like, what do you want to do? You want to be on the winning team, and, and you're thinking the whole time, like, I want to be on that team. Oh, he's good, I want to be on that team. Somebody pick me, somebody pick me, I want to be on that team. We kind of have all this emotional stuff, and I think for us, like, in the spiritual battle, like, we can have insecurities about our own stuff and boast our weakness all day, but what we've got to remember is that we're fighting for the right, right team. And then there's confidence in that, that it is the Lord who rescued us. They come at us with everything they can come, but we come in the the name of the Lord. So let's look at David's advantages. And what you'll see is that there's pretty much um, uh, just an opposite effect here. That while Goliath was unprepared for this battle, David was extremely prepared. I'd say he was extremely prepared for multiple reasons. A, he came with a gun to a sword fight. Like he was prepared in that way. He came with a spiritual mindset. I'd also say this, he had the, the right uh, experience, and he had the right equipment for this battle, and I, I think of the, the there's the scripture that talks about being instant in season, out season, just being ready, and I think of that. that David was so prepared, like God had prepared him in the field for the, the battle that would be in the battlefield, and there's this experience with God that he had defeated a bear, he had defeated a lion, and here he was with a giant with swords and bronze all over him, that he was called upon to fight from the Lord more than any man. Nobody believed in him. Not his older brother, not his family. Nobody believed in him. The the guy that's in charge of him, his boss, didn't believe in him. You know, his dad sent him there to be the water boy. But there's this incredible experience that he had prepared him for. And if we look at David's life in in a whole, that every experience built on top of the next. Like God gave him experiences in the field for what would happen in the battlefield and, and prepared him at the battlefield for what would happen in the desert when he was running from Saul. And he used the desert running from Saul to prepare him for the kingdom. One of the most interesting things, I think, about this whole thing that I've been studying over the past several months um, is that David, when he's running from Saul, I didn't talk about this last week, I was saving it. Um, one of the most interesting things that David, when he's running from Saul, one of the places he takes refuge to is Gath. The place he takes refuge to is the hometown of Goliath. In his next season of life, the place he ran back to was the giant that he cut off his head, like his hometown. Like he knew what that town was, it was close to the Valley of Elah. It was kind of like some of you that have moved away from home and you go back home and it was kind of like a, whoa, this is a little bit weird moment for him. Um, David had this incredible uh, you know, preparedness, not only in the experiences that build upon one another and how he would even return back to those experiences, um, even just to tell Saul, like, hey, I'm prepared for this. I killed this, I killed this. God showed himself. It wasn't about what he had done in the last season. It was about what God had done in the last season. And what I think it built in that um, and and uh, before I say that, equipment was the, really the, the, the last thing, that he knew he was. Like, Saul tried to make him into who he was. Like, he, he tried to make him, and let's make this an even fight, and David like, nah, bro. Like, I'm me. I'm going to be me. Like, it takes us, some of us it takes five years, ten years, some of us it takes 40 years to find truly who we are. And to just rest in that, and not look to try to be like anyone else, but to be who God's called us to be. To use the weapons of warfare that he's giving us, not anyone else, but who he's called us to be, the experiences that he's given us. And so we need not to fit into someone else's armor, but to fit into the Lord's that he's given us. Preparedness. The the next one I I would say, um, here is his faith in the Lord, where Goliath had faith in himself. David had faith in the Lord. The Lord will rescue us. The battle is not ours. Like, he he repeats these things. When he talks about, you know, everybody's talking about the armies of Israel. He's like the army of the Lord. Like, he is looking at it with faith. The the experience that he had, that preparedness had brought him to this place of faith for this season of life. And, like, you may feel so ill-equipped. You may feel like the water boy running up to the battlefield just to check on your brothers. And God, like, presents an opportunity like, have confidence because you're fighting for the right team. Have confidence because that experience has prepared you for this one. H- have confidence because it is the Lord who rescues us. It is, the battle is his, it's not ours. Man, and all of a sudden, I see why David had such confidence to just be like, I'll go. Everybody else was scared to death. And he's like, I'll go. The king himself is like, nah, bro. Like, no. He's like, whatever. I right, take my stuff. This, his journey with God had brought great confidence in God. And that season prepared him for this one and to the next. And, and lastly, um, I'd say today that his greatest advantage, and I've said it multiple times already, is the name of the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord uh, more than anything. It, it wasn't about um, what he could do on the field. It wasn't about how loud he could yell. It wasn't really even about his gifts. He, he called upon the name of the Lord. He said, you come at me with a spear and a javelin, a sword. I come against you in the name of the Lord. He was fighting the right battle. He was fighting for the right team. And, and I just say to us today, like whatever you're up against, whatever relationship is in front of you, that is a Goliath and maybe that Goliath is, is uh, your addiction. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's just shame, whatever that might be. The, like, and if you haven't had one yet, you'll probably have one. You may still be in the field. and God's gonna, There'll be a battlefield moment in your life where you think you're showing up just to bring the bread and the cheese, but like, hey, God's going to stir in your heart. Like, time, time to, to throw bows. And um, we need not be afraid, but we can have confidence. We can have confidence. God's brought us to this place for a reason. He's brought us through those seasons for a reason, from the field all the way to the kingdom, to get our heart just centered on him and who he is. And so I want to ask you to stand today, and I don't know what what the Goliath is that you've got in your life, but I know that God can bring revelation and encouragement to all of us, uh, bring wisdom and strength and faith and confidence through this powerful story of one who on the outside no one believed in, the one on the outside that no one would put in the war, would put in the battle, but I I want us to come today, come to the table, and find confidence not in ourselves, but that Jesus was broken for us, (laughs) that Jesus made a way for us, that the battle is won, like we don't we can just enjoy the victory that is won. The battle's his, and it's been won. As we lift our hands, we, we lift them with just a heart of joy, knowing that uh, victory's won. Throw the flag in the ground and don't let go of it. Just find ourselves in surrender today as we, we come to the table. And Jesus is, is such a perfect example of just of what it means to, to be human in fact, and that he would humble himself, was born from, born in a humble place, humble beginnings, and walked. said, not my will, God, but yours be done. In every season of his life, God gave him great victory over sin in the grave. And so today, if you've never encountered Jesus, if you've never, never felt the love of the Father, then today I just ask you to just surrender your heart to him. Just say yes to him just say yes to him, and come, like, ask him to forgive you of your sins, repent of them, and just come confess to the Lord, and say, God, I want more of you, I need more of you, and maybe you've said that before, maybe you're in just a battle of your life right now, or maybe you've just come through one, and you just need to stand in confidence, and know that Jesus is all we need today, he's all we need, the victory's won, he's our refuge, so I'm going to pray for us today, and invite us to the table.